would you like to know? Well, you should listen. Zoom. Cron. Week in review. Listen closely. Zoom. Cron. It's gonna help you. Then think for yourself. What the hell happens? I'm gonna tell you. From my in perspective. The Zoom Cron. In the Zoom Cron. Week, Week in, in review. review. Right now. Here's an independent journalist. Travis William Skink Matier. And welcome to another episode of Zoomcron Week in Review. It looks like we are recording. Technology, though, is not my friend. I continue learning how technology is not my friend by barely making it to the deadline. But thanks to the woman joining me today, Allie Harrison. Hi. Allie is the author and victim's advocate that has been joining me and helping me review the week here in Missoula, Montana, Missoula being Zoomtown, and Zoomtown is the inspiration for Zoomcron, which is the blog you can read at www.zoomcron.com. My voice is a little shot again. Um, I like to project my strong feelings throughout the week, um, and the last couple of weeks have just been very intense here in Missoula, Montana. Um, we're actually going to get to some national news at some point because there has been a balloon in the big sky of Montana, and the balloon has captured the attention of the nation. But this is a local news week in review for the most part. Right, Allie? For the most part. For, for the most part. Okay. Um, but we are going to be touching on some national issues. And the first post on January 30th was titled, One Factor in the Killing of Tyree Nichols That Won't Get Big Media Attention. And so when, when I write about a story that's getting national attention, if it's outside of the Missoula, Montana scope, I like to try and, and think of something that makes my writing a bit unique and then also ties it in locally. And Ali, I don't know if you remember the, the Killology controversy. I do. Yes, Killology is David Grossman. That's a book that he actually wrote. And the man is a philosopher of death in some ways. And it's kind of interesting because the, the training aspect of what happened in Memphis is what I took a little look at. Um, we touched upon this a little bit the previous week in review. Um, but for this week, um, I started off with this post that got into a parable that you may not have heard of. Um, it's somewhat, somewhat familiar, I think, to some people. Um, but it's the parable of the frog and the scorpion. And I'm going to read this little story here real quick. <clears throat> a scorpion wants to cross a river but cannot swim, so it asks a frog to carry it across. The frog hesitates, afraid that the scorpion might sting it, but the scorpion promises not to, pointing out that it would drown if it killed the frog in the middle of the river. The frog considers this, this argument sensible and agrees to transport the scorpion. Midway across the river, the scorpion stings the frog anyway, dooming them both. The dying frog asks the scorpion why it stung despite knowing the consequence, to which the scorpion replies, I am sorry, but I couldn't resist the urge. It's in my nature. 
So I, I use that narrative as a, or the, the parable as a leaping off point, in part because just the, the, the scorpion is the name of the, the unit that um, has now been disbanded in Memphis, Mon Memphis Montana, in, <laughs> in Memphis, Tennessee. It could be in Montana. It very well could be in Montana. Um, and, and so the scorpion unit actually was a pretty aggressive unit, it sounds like, that was going after uh, enforcing laws. And part of that actually may come from what different police chiefs around the country learn from the state of Israel. And so another link in the post um, talks a little bit about how the police department of Memphis, Tennessee, and this is a quote from the link, is among the departments that have sent delegates to Israel. So Larry Goldwyn served as the director of the Memphis Police Department between 2004 and 2011. Larry Godwin then served as deputy commissioner at the state of Tennessee Department of Safety and Homeland Security between 2011 and 2016. Larry Goldwyn attended a training in Israel as a delegate of the Homeland Security International Conference in 2010. Larry Godwin is credited with instituting the quote, blue crush predictive policing system at the Memphis Police Department, which targets high crime quote, hotspots resulting in increased policing of low-income communities of color. So um, when the focus then becomes whether or not five black men can be, can be racist, when the focus becomes that, then you're not necessarily thinking of more objective policy decisions, trainings that law enforcement might be going through. Um, and then the Missoulian article that I quoted, just right after the, the quote that I just read, the Missoulian article is interesting because it, it then talks about the $8,000 in local money that was used to make sure that um, Army, former Army Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman got paid for his killology training. And I'm going to read this excerpt, to, this ex excerpt, and then we can discuss this a bit. So this is from a, um, a local article here in Missoula. Missoula approved payment of almost $8,000 at Monday night's city council meeting for two recent police training sessions with a company mired in controversy surrounding comments made by its director, former Army Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. In a video that surfaced online last year of a presentation by Killology Research Group in 2015, Grossman, head of the group, implies that sexual pleasure of police officers is amplified following a violent confrontation with a suspect. Cop says knocked down. Drag out fight. Cuff them. Stuff them. Finally get home at the end of the shift and cop says, gunfight. Bad guy's down. I'm alive. Finally gets home at the end of the incident and they all say the best sex I've had in months, Grossman says in the video. Um, I wish I could actually play the audio of the video because I've seen the, the video clip. It's gross, man. Really gross. So the idea of training, the idea of police culture... Um, this is where the violence really emerges from, and not just police culture, but the fact that law enforcement is in direct conflict with people on the streets in ways that the general public really doesn't understand, not to give any out in, in terms of what was seen on video in, in this beating death of Tyree Nichols, but some, some things to think about as we talk about the police training locally and nationally. Allie, do you have any perspective or concerns or... I do. First of all, I think there's a question of nature versus nurture as uh -huh. far as like police brutality is concerned. I have a deep-seated soft spot in my heart for first responders at the end of the day. And I know 
that what they've seen, they've internalized and have a lot, they carry a lot of secondary trauma from what they've seen on the field. Also known as vicarious trauma. Correct. And it is very interesting to me that secondary trauma training is not more of a priority across law enforcement um, agencies in our nation because first responders are three times likelier than the general population to commit suicide. So oh, there, wow. there is a mental health crisis within the law enforcement field, and I have tremendous respect for the people who do serve, and my heart is to see, see them taken care of, taken well care of, because what happens when that doesn't happen, we see incidents like in Memphis, Tennessee with Tyree Nichols. We see people, we see supervisors who were clearly not supervising their employees. I, I say that, and, and maybe you can, anyone can contest me on that, but I believe that's a supervision issue ultimately. <laughs> supervision, definitely. Um, you and I have both supervised volunteers. Yes. So we've seen volunteers, not just regular volunteers, but volunteers in fairly you know, high intensity volunteer roles in nonprofits. So me at emergency shelter, you an organization that um, tracks youth through the courts. And so um, from that perspective, I think it's it's we, we see the some of the skewed trauma based individuals, not, not trauma-based individuals, but folks that have experienced trauma and that are going through the system. And I, I think that actually skews our perspective a bit. Sure. Um, you know, I, I know that like at the end of my job at the Pavarello Center, it, it took someone in a supervisory role over me to point out that I was in a level of burnout that, that really needed, I needed to step back. And so, right. you know, I left my job before I engaged in some kind of overreaction I was at that point, though, of potentially doing something. And so because I did have good supervision in terms of identifying, helping me identify when to step back. Sure. And then, I mean, it was a situation with a machete, which is kind of funny because, you know, the homeless folks in Missoula love their machetes. Um, increasingly, <laughs> the incidents we read about in the, in the papers have machetes as, as one of the favorite tools of defense and or aggression. But this gentleman that I was trying to um, talk to was pretty intoxicated. I knew him pretty well. He was fairly physically immobilized. And so I wasn't worried about him closing the distance with his machete the way maybe a law enforcement official would if they were trying to assess the safety. But at the same time, I still probably shouldn't have yelled and then taken um, aggressive steps toward him. It was my volunteer, actually, who pulled me back. Right. Good old Robert. I remember Robert, great volunteer. But he, he kind of said, not physically pulled me back, but he, he suggested that I, I consider why I was taking steps toward the man with the machete. Stay away from people with knives. He had to point out a fairly obvious thing, which is do not continue moving towards the man with the machete who was intoxicated right. on, the, on the West Broadway Island. Maybe just kind of leave the situation. And ultimately, that's what we did. But um, I, I think the vicarious trauma that first responders experience is a real, real thing, obviously. And, and if more resources, money is, aren't invested in that kind of support, um, then you do have potentially this sort of like alpha male training, macho culture engendering situation that just leads to not good outcomes. It's interesting what you said. First of all, just a pitch that it's cost saving to do secondary trauma training. It, it 
eliminates um, the high degree of turnover. It better supports staff. So I highly advocate that. One interesting note, you mentioned as an unarmed staff person, you probably shouldn't inch toward the man with the machete mm -hmm. who's wielding it at you angrily, right? Truth. Law enforcement and firefighters are taught to run into the flames. And they are, like our law enforcement personnel, including in the recent coroner's inquest we saw, right. they are going into a knife fight. They are going a lot of times into an armed altercation, and right. that's what they do. And so interesting, it's one thing on the job, how they respond and react where they have all these high-intensity, potentially life-threatening encounters what do they do with that when they come home? Because the same skill set that is useful on the job is very not helpful at home. Well, um, some of the things they do is they overreact to their kids um, if they do have kids. And so they'll have difficult moderating their responses to the sort of home front. Um, a lot will self-medicate with alcohol. Sure. Um, I don't want to get too much into the details of what I experienced in a, in a float chamber because I'm going to do some writing about that. Um, there is some really interesting evidence that that is a fascinating, effective way to deal with trauma, PTSD, some of these situations that first responders experience um, because opiates, benzos, alcohol, those are all medicated, um, not the greatest ways of right. dealing with stress. Um, hopefully maybe there's some, some, you know, working out that happens because you are in a fight or flight adrenaline release mm -hmm. kind of situation. Um, some people get habituated to that and then just seek that out more and more. So maybe they're going out and doing some, uh, risk risky situations on, in the off hours. Um, there's a lot of challenges. And if we don't get serious about training law enforcement, um, then we're going to have more expensive situations that they have to respond to. One quick book recommendation, if anyone's interested, The Body Keeps the Score oh, is I've heard that. a great book about how the body uh, houses trauma even long after the event. And it, it has some interesting anecdotes and also some tips, too. So if you have more interest in diving into post-traumatic stress disorder, The Body Keeps the Score is a great read. So keeping the score of crashes bicycle crashes this is a great segue i was as you were talking i was sitting here thinking a like, segue like the vehicles no 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 you're gonna mess up the great segue um this is a, a even better segue because that transportation segue device is ridiculous this is a segue rhetorical device of moving into the next topic oh, okay but making sure there's like a connection so the first responders that are going on scene to a bicycle accident for example right um uh, now i'm making this kind of sloppy i it, in my head, it played out so much better. But um, the, the next post I want to discuss was on January 31st, and the, the title is Seen Through the Mist of the Multimodal Fantasyland, Missoula Transportation Zealots Envision for Us. That, that's a mouthful. It is. Um, and so I was hoping the, the transition was going to be made easier by the simple idea that people on bicycles can crash. How many crashes are happening in places like the Higgins Quarter downtown or Reserve Street is a question. And so um, the reason why it's a question is because we are looking at large changes in trans transportation infrastructure. And there is a sense that we are going to make changes based on protecting bicyclists. 
So uh, people in Missoula, sure. I think, want to know how many people are using multimodal modes of transportation like bicycles in their feet. Uh, this is Montana. We have winter. People that have kids aren't necessarily biking around, although we did hear some testimony from Heidi West. It wasn't a court proceeding. We heard, we heard some commentary from Heidi West about you know, biking on Higgins in a bike trailer with young kids to her workplace right. on, on the hip strip and how that was scary. The question is, do we then change things to make people feel more safe? Is there a, a real risk that bicyclists are facing downtown? Um, and there are. I mean, it's a scary thing if you're biking in traffic. I, I've actually been a bicyclist biking around to work and, and for fun um, for many years. And so I'm, I'm pretty familiar with some of the risks, some of the bad behavior from motorists and from bicyclists that I see. But we have a big conversation brewing um, about the, the lane reduction with the Higgins Corridor here in Missoula. Um, this is part of a larger conversation happening nationally with changing transportation to accommodate things like electric cars. If you're in a, in a community that's looking at light rail, God bless it, um, you're in for a costly, costly fight potentially to stop insanity from taking hold. Um, but this this post here is a little bit more specific to to the Missoula subtle influence that can that can exist and so um i actually did not realize that mist was a thing so mist stands for the missoula institute for sustainable transportation um and mist is essentially bob giordano who also runs free cycles free cycles um has been around since 1996 in that immense amount of time has not really become a sustainable entity financially because they're still having to go to the community to beg for money um, they recently got $18,000 for a new sound system because they like to have shows. Um, you can go rock out and see a show at Free Cycles. Not to criticize rocking out. I like to do that myself and go see some shows from that from you know every now and then. It's just interesting, though, how there's also a pretty nice chunk of debt forgiveness that happened with Free Cycles. And so $87,000 in debt was forgiven by the county commissioners. So it, it kind of starts making it look a little interesting when you've got Facebook engagement from quote unquote mist um, talking about this this Higgins corridor lane reduction plan because mist is of, of course in support of going from four lanes to three because it'll be safer for bikers ostensibly and you start you have to start asking yourself especially when a county entity like the, the like the county commissioners is starting to forgive debt. You have to start wondering where that influence is getting a little troubling. Um, there is also an example of an alternative infrastructure for trains that I offered. That, of course, is my Legos. Yes, I'm a serious journalist, but I also like to play with Legos. Um, and I have a train. And there's going to be a little internment camp behind the train. But that's that's for a, another another day. Um, so we've got also... <laughs> Let me let me take a look. We've got some engagement. Um, I'm going to read some of these comments because I think they're kind of interesting. So this is some commentary that comes from Let's Improve Missoula's Reserve Street. That's Kevin Davis, who is a um, great advocate for cleaning up his Reserve Street corridor. And it, I, I think it, it is almost his the way he has um, adopted portions of the thoroughfare and has really brought a lot of attention to development in that area. Um, a comment, social media can be a good indicator of community sentiment and necessary change in policy. That seems like a fairly straightforward comment. The response from John Wolverton, who is a multimodal advocate, maybe a multimodal zealot, he might be an MMZ, um, but John Wolverton's response, pretty simple, no, it is not. 
the back and forth goes a little bit further. Well, actually, this community page that you've been involved in has had much impact for years now through messaging and discussion and awareness. Says, let's improve Missoula, Missoula's Reserve Street. And then John, John Wolverton in response. Yes, impacts through Riverside cleanup service projects and some modest educational Zoom forums, those having the effect of heightening awareness. But those are distinctly different from any empirical gauge of community desires or distinct policy initiatives. I would not take comments on Facebook or six to a dozen citizens, Zoom attendees as, quote, a good indicator of community sentiment and necessary change. So this actually, I mean, this little, this little commentary back and forth, um, I think, does speak to this larger conversation of how the, the, the public is being informed and educated about what's going on. Um, and then, you know, what, what their engagement looks like and what actually is a, a accurate gauge of public sentiment. Um, we had a vote uh, with the crisis mill levy that still seems to be re reverberating. And so that was one way to gauge public sentiment against a mill levy that was going to give $5 million a year in perpetuity to homeless service providers, among others. Um, so we do have some more official ways of gauging public sentiment, but I don't know. What, what, what do you think, Ali, about, you know, getting on, on Facebook and, and educating yourself about public commentary? Um, what do you think about transportation? Do you go multimodal in Missoula, Montana when it comes to moving around town? Yeah, I believe in biking and walking and hiking and busing, although I don't bus frequently. Um, but I, what was your previous question? Your question was? Well, I mean, just kind of a scattershot question of, uh, you know, the public sentiment, how we gauge public sentiment. Um, oh, do I think Facebook is a good metric of, of public sentiment? Um, I, I personally, and I hate, I, I despise the platform. I'm reluctantly on it for, um, because I've, I was told that I have to be. <laughs> so, um, it, it's a really good question. Public engagement, how do you measure it and who actually gets the surveys, for example, and um, that the city sometimes puts forth and asking for public input. And then we have 700 people who respond and who are those people? And, and you have to be somewhat engaged to even engage the process, I think, to even know what the process is. Um, but as far as gauging public sentiment, I think what you were speaking about uh, was the Reserve Street group that meets rather regularly and uh, members of leadership. Sometimes like the county commissioners were recent guests. Oh, on yeah. That. Yeah. Good point. That's right. Um, so it so does that is it more or less effective than organized meetings? I don't know. It's probably. The people who are aware of it engage with it and the 90% of the rest of people. <laughs> well, you make, you make a good point that this is a specific group um, or a specific group created to, to really, I think, target and, and encourage and enhance public engagement over a specific topics that were brought, brought to the, the readers and, and folks through the, through the Facebook forum. Um, and so that is, that is one way that you know, people are choosing to engage. Um, it's interesting, though, when, you know, and we'll get probably back to this in a, in a post that's going to be one of the last ones we'll talk about, but um, you and I both attended a Wednesday public works committee meeting. This was starting at 1 p.m., 
And the reason w- was because this Higgins Quarter plan was going to be discussed. Scott Billadu, a local businessman, was there and made public comments. A few other people made public comments. Very interesting that the Missoulian chose to only name Scott. Um, full disclosure, I also made public comment. Um, Scott was was named in the Missoulian article, but it, it, the rest of the people that made comment were referred to essentially as Scott's ilk. Scott Billadu and his ilk right. were, were making comments. I actually think that has a somewhat chilling effect on getting more people to the city council chambers to potentially make comments because they then have to consider being a, a, a part of an, an ilk. Lumped in as right. if they're the same. I mean, some people may share overlapping concerns, but that by no means means that they're the same or that they're part of an ilk. And, you know, I did not know that Scott was going to, to be there and, and presented his points. And, uh, you know, when this posts on Sunday, I'm going to include the points. He was able to send those to me via email. So I'm going to include that um, that people can read and, and take a look at some of the nitty gritty details that one businessman with other folks that have signed on to, to his points that, that he was articulating um, but it, it really is going to be interesting to see what happens on Monday. I did a little bit of legwork talking to some businesses, and we'll probably do just a little bit more um, to see really if, if outreach from the designers, from the, the street engineers was, was actually happening. And so I did see some flyers that were handed out and talked to some businesses that said, yeah, folks came by. Um, mostly, I think the concern is loss of parking. And so there is going to be parking spots lost. And that's where you start getting the sense of cars versus bikes um, being part of the dynamic at play. And that was part of the defensiveness on Wednesday at the public works uh, meeting was the engineers not wanting this to be seen as bikes versus cars, cars versus bikes. Um, I, in making public comments, said that I thought it was potentially more a situation of people versus infrastructure and rules and, you know, whether or not rules can be enforced. Um, and the people aspects, you know, the people part of this being like messy human behavior that doesn't always use, let's say, a pedestrian crosswalk. Don't always use the infrastructure right. the way it's intended. As smart as all of those engineers are and the degrees they got and the nice comments from, I think it was Stacey Anderson that was essentially helping prop them up because I think their, their feels got real hurt from the criticism coming in about this plan. Um, and really, I think they should understand it's not really criticism of the specifics because the public is starting to just get get aware of the specifics. It is how things are being handled by our elected officials. And then when criticism does crop up, I swear, the, the condescension that, that you can just feel, the, the disdain that really is palpable in this room, uh, maybe it's just because I've been part of a long-term effort to bring attention to things like tax increment financing and the abuses that have resulted of having a $35 million shadow government called the Missoula Redevelopment Agency. Maybe it's, maybe I'm sensitive to picking up on a disdain that might be somewhat targeted towards me as an individual. But I, I really do think it carries over to really just a frustration that they have to sit there and take public comment again. I mean, the pandemic was nice. They got to get away from that, um, from being in that space. And uh, now they have to be back with the dirty, dirty hordes. Ha. But that's a good uh, question about public notice. Uh, yeah. I think circling back to true, true. public engagement. Because I 
for one, don't have the answer because how do you notify a hundred thousand people in the county? Well, about and, and well, and so that this is interesting. That's right because we were talking a little bit about this a couple days ago. That public notices in hard copy newspapers, and in Florida, there was some legislation that was going to basically strip the need for there to be public notice, right. and that was going to actually really impact the revenue of of Florida newspapers. Mm. And part of this came up because we were really making the rounds this week. We went to a Thursday county commissioners meeting. And one of the things on the agenda we, we weren't aware of, but it was the, the Clinton community is going sure. to potentially have a, a community council. They're going to vote to vote on it. Yes, there was a initial vote to get it to a community vote. So right. the vote to so get to the vote. So that they can vote whether or not they want it. And already there was some frustration that people were just starting to hear about it and thought that there wasn't really proper notice. And so that idea of public notice came up specifically in, um, in, in how the public was starting to learn about this, this possibility, this opportunity. Right. And so if there's no notice there's, or, or little notice, there's little engagement, obviously. Uh, and so I don't know the answer to how do you engage the public more? How do you give more notice? Because I imagine if you're the county commissioners or if you're city council, you say, well, hey, we have we published the agenda. Anyone who wants to can find the agenda. But mm, everyday members of the public who have lives to lead probably don't even know where to go on the website to find that agenda. Most people, and I, I'm people who are not paying attention never necessarily to government, but they may see that story about Higgins becoming three lanes in the newspaper and say, hey, I didn't hear about that. So they usually, it's public engagement on the back end. Right, right. And that's, and so there's a frustration, it seems like passing ships in the night somewhat because the public is like, why didn't I know about that two years ago? And then the, the public officials are like, well, we, we've been in this process for two years and we're telling you just because you're finding the manifest, uh, the manifestation of those plans. Finally, you weren't there when they planted the seed, but you see the fruit. Well, and that's, <clears throat> that's why it's, it's really interesting with the Higgins quarter plan to, to hear the frustration uh, really from members of city council that the public should be aware that this has been a conversation ongoing for years. The the contention, I think, being that, well, no, um, you designed a four-lane bridge. So the, the Montana Department of Transportation, which right. is a state agency, they designed a four-lane bridge, which is now called the Bear Tracks Bridge. What I am hearing from um, Aaron Wilson for the city in his response is that they didn't get the plans in early enough with Montana Department of Transportation for the three-lane version to be a part of what they were doing. And so I, I think that's actually where the frustration is, is that if what they are saying is true, if the if this, this three-lane um, Higgins Corridor plan has been in the works for years and years, then why didn't they get their shit together and, and tell MDT, so to tell their state partners that this was the plan that they were like hoping right. for. And so I, I think that's where you start getting 
um, some disingenuousness being claimed by people like Scott Billadu that um, the city is not being forthright when they say that right. this has been you know years and years in discussion. Maybe this has been one idea in some of the master planning that's been going on for the downtown core. I mean, I'm sure they can find something in some plan somewhere that sure. says this is this is one of the ideas. And so technically, I'm sure they're not lying. But public sentiment is what it is, and it's a wishy-washy kind of amoeba um, that you kind of poke in one way and it might pop up some kind of frustration somewhere else. And so people are starting to, to get a sense of what's happening. And I, I don't have answers either in terms of public notice. I do have a suggestion. This would be for Dave Strohmeyer and Josh Slotnick. Don't make democracy sound like a used car. I mean, don't. I, I, I think democracy is cool and all. Like I made in my public comments, I would much rather go to a Clinton community council and ask about the uh, murdered 80-year-old woman and what's going on with the investigation from the community's perspective than having to go to a local bar. Um, so I'm supportive of the Clinton community council. I really am. Um, I don't know if making it feel like a used car when you start getting all excited about democracy that you're going to vote to vote more. You know, it just it, I don't know, guys, just it's not an answer, just a just a helpful suggestion as I sit in that space in the Missoula County Courthouse on a Thursday at 2 p.m. Not as excited about democracy as Dave Strohmeyer. I have a suggestion. Yes. Bring back Gidge the dog. See, that is mm. the absolute. I love that. Doug. Okay. Okay. And amazing. He's he's our pet commissioner. I understand. I appreciate you that. have a soft spot. In I your really heart. do. What you don't understand is that you just provided another great segue because oh, there good. there was a post on February first on snakes and pussies. Oh. Many pictures of cats, Ki kitties, pussies, kitties, yeah. kitty cats. Okay. Um, and we're just going to briefly touch on this post here because it kind of goes around a few different areas, but mostly it opens up with the idea in terms of the snake um, that you lop off the head of the snake. Ooh. Like, like when you want to, to address a problem that you're, that you're sort of exemplifying as a snake or personifying as a snake, then clearly to, to take care of that problem, you start with the head of the snake and you just lop it off. Right. The problem is, Mike Toth, he's a former sheriff. He's not a snake. So cutting his, his head off, we're, we're not ISIS here in America, right? We're not, we're not going off and chopping heads, right? So Lance Jasper, the lawyer who used this kind of incendiary language, was actually told by Sean Vanetta. So Judge Vanetta. Shane. Yeah. Shane, Shane. Shane Vanetta, our judge. Yes. Of both Missoula County and the amazing, amazing mandamus drama that's unfolding in mineral county um it's amazing Allie. yeah so you've actually sat in court and i know you're looking at the screen hoping that we're still recording we are still recording technology <laughs> okay. is still working so far okay um i i am skeptical about technology i will let you know if it's all failing you Allie, have seen many many court proceedings yes have you heard a lawyer use language like that in reference to another government official like a sheriff no, I have heard lots of colorful language in federal and district court and certainly municipal court, but from lawyers, from, from defendants. Yes. Not ever heard the lop off the head of a snake thing, but I mean, I'm not saying that I disagree or agree with the analogy. I'm saying I, I haven't heard that before. I think the judge took a little bit of umbrage for that. He's like, I'm not too keen on lopping heads off or something like that but 
Well, and some of the things that we I think we also touched on last week, but I just want to emphasize again is that um, Judge Bonetta reminded all participants in this court proceeding that it's an adversarial one. And so when you have the new sheriff, <clears throat> Ryan Funk, <clears throat> excuse me, when you have the new sheriff, Ryan Funk, who is directly communicating with Lance Jasper instead of going mm -hmm. through the county attorney's office, um, you really do have some questions that are that are a bit troubling because um, Lance Jasper and for, for folks outside of Mineral County, which is most everyone in the country, um, Lance Jasper is part of a family. And the Jasper family is one of those families that has influence, kind of like the Lincoln family, from what I hear and talking to folks on the street. But the, the Jasper family, many of them having politically donated, uh, financially donated to Ryan Funk's political campaign, um, you don't necessarily want to see the lawyer Lance Jasper and Ryan Funk talking about personnel decisions, hiring practices, you know, some of the basic things that, a, that a, a sheriff's office does, you want that conversation happening with the county attorney's office because it's the county attorney's office and the sheriff's office that are under the, the mandamus pressure. And that was brought by Lance Jasper, who <clears throat> didn't even really know what a, what a mandamus was before he started this whole thing. Do, do right. you remember that, I, Allie? I, you, you reminded me I, of that. I do remember that. He was like, what's this mandamus here, judge? I think I'm going to use it to open up this county like a like a sardine can. And then and then guess what? When they open up the sardine can, it started to smell really bad. But Ryan Funk, the office, Ryan Funk bad. knows how to clean up bad smells, right? Ostensibly, well, the thing that I take issue with about the lopping the head off the snake analogy. Yes. Is I think it's an oversimplification. Because there's a if there is a culture of corruption, which may or may not be the case in Mineral County, I'll leave that to you to decide. But it's interesting because it's very simple to say once this guy's gone, then everything's magically better. Right. It's right. not. Yes. This trust me, trust me when I say it has taken years and years and years for Mineral County to get in the state that it's in. And it doesn't take just one person leaving office or two people leaving office for that to change, unfortunately. Yes. And that, um, <clears throat> excuse me, that, that really is the, the main point, I think, that, um, that I took away is uh, <laughs> the, the idea that, that you're just going to get sh the former sheriff, Mike Toff, to, to be the, the sort of tar baby that everything sticks to. And so when he goes, then all the bad just goes with him. You know, he was one person of, of many within the sheriff's office that um, was tasked with protecting its citizens and following the Constitution. The man, writ of mandamus indicates they've had trouble doing that. Granted, it's not great when the former sheriff allegedly factory resets laptops and phones and stuff. That's not a great look. That is a bad thing, and when when that when that same sheriff seems to be ignoring a subpoena, and when yeah. the when the conversation is getting to be, yeah, how coercive do we need to get in order to get Mike Toth to get to yeah. be deposed? And we also have Judge Vanetta again being very patient and being very kind in his interpretation that this is all just whoopsie do, like a uh, factory reset, whoops, hit the wrong button. You know? He's more trust but verify, and that's why I think he's ordered forensics to be done to, see, to ascertain what was deleted, what wasn't deleted, 
what can be accessed. He's very level-headed. I have a lot of respect for Judge Mineta. Yes, he uh, he's trying to have a a government function actually function. That would be in opposition to what's happening with snow removal. What just happened is a segue right there. We segued into snow removal. Was that a segue like the vehicle or a segue? Like <clears throat> the... I, I think you're failing to appreciate how clever it was to, to all of a sudden be talking about snow. Yeah. And government. Yes. Should snow and government go together? Allie, respond. Well, I would rather have them shovel snow than other things. Very, very good response. Um, people are probably wondering what the heck snow and government have to do but with each other. The thing about government, especially like municipal government, is that they can come up with all kinds of processes, and then you have to follow it. So this is a perfect example, and I try to make this example on Wednesday. I try to make this connection. I failed to do so. I got too annoyed. But when government creates rules and then this process, that, and they think in, in theory this is how it works, all right? You have to have snow shoveled by 9 a.m. That's a rule. Right. So if you own property, if you own a business, you have to have that snow, if it's fallen, removed by 9 a.m. Now... If someone is not doing that, you can report that violation of the rule. Right. You can report that. Um, there is a process. There is paid government people that, that will verify these reports of non-removal because letters are sent. And, and here's the kicker. You can get an assessment on your taxes if you are not wow. removing snow chronically enough to get letters sent to you. And then it still happens. So there was an article I think it hit KGVO. I think it was in KPAX, maybe even the Missoulian, where Ginny Miriam, the, the public communication person for, for the city of Missoula, was begging Missoula residents to stop filing false reports. Was that this week? Yeah, that oh, was. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. <clears throat> because so many agitated and just, I mean, apparently asshole neighbors are, are filing reports that don't appear to be accurate. It's clogging up the system. Wow. And they're not able to properly respond. You could be getting letters sent to you just because someone has a beef and is, is falsely saying you're not removing snow. Sure. Um, and this is, this is my point. Wow. Humans are messy. They, they are really messy. The, the laws that, that get created, if you're not thinking about how messy humans can be, I, um, I used to make this point when they were talking about red flag laws. I'm like, okay, so you're going to create some red flag laws. You're going to have families and you know loved ones and people going through all numbers of challenging situations, whether they're already caught up in the court system or they're going through some kind of emotionally charged process, like a divorce. <laughs> Emotions, divorce. Um, <clears throat> wait, why is my voice scratchy? Anyways, um, when you are putting this stuff in place, what happens? It, it can be overused. You can have, um, I mean, people on probation and parole are, are constantly, you know, having to report any kind of law enforcement contact. And so let's say you have a disgruntled, you know, partner or ex-girlfriend or ex-wife or ex-husband or ex-boyfriend, and they want to get you in trouble. They know calling the, the cops on you, you're going to have to report to your, your office, your parole officer. That could get you in jail. That could lose your job. I mean, there's, you have so many situations with government intervention if it's coming in the form of, of a cop. 
um, especially when you're talking about mental health issues and guns. Um, so red flag laws, snow removal, you might not see the connection, but I don't. government intervention when it comes to the messy behavior of humans. Um, I, when we were talking about this off air, we were talking about snow removal. If you're like work the night shifts or if you're a grandma right. and it's kind of difficult, you know, that's the, so just to give a quick sort of range of different types of people that might be responsible for snow removal. Um, Maybe I'm rambling a bit and not making the most sense, but yeah, I, I, I mean, think government intervention when it comes to creating these these frameworks or, or processes and then having to enforce it, you, you, you're creating problems. There's different levels of public safety, and I know that the snow removal thing sort of falls under the banner of public safety because we don't want people... Uh, walking on iced over, snowed over Slipping sidewalks. Slipping and falling. Slip, slip and falls, right? You break a hip, then that's costly to fix. Yeah, so I do see there is a role for government, obviously, in law enforcement where it's like public safety issues and knife-wielding people and such. Um, where it comes to micromanaging sidewalks, um, I think that becomes, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's first of all, really hard to enforce. And I'm not sure. I, I see the reason why. I mean, in, in some ways, I see the reason behind the ordinance as far as like clearing sidewalks. The effects, the unintended consequences of that ends up being 97-year-old grandmother uh, having to shovel her walk. And that doesn't seem to be great and so unless there's assistance provided to accomplish that end like if if there is a mandate then hopefully there's some sort of assistance that helps achieve that goal um that's fine but because that doesn't seem to be happening i think that's a potential problem it's just interesting how uh, in a snowy snowy western state like montana um, we can take something that happens pretty regularly in the winter time which is the, the cold white stuff falling from the sky and, you know, take what once upon a time was sort of just neighbor on neighbor positive. You, you look out for the older sure. person. Um, I know, I, I think even yeah. your family has sometimes like helped out. I know, I know people that, that still do that. Sure. The spirit of helping out your neighbor. Absolutely. Yeah. And for the five to six months of winter that we encounter <laughs> every year, it's a, uh, it's pretty important. So speaking of white stuff, I'm going to segue into Tobin Miller Shearer. He's a white man. Did you know that? I don't know. Um, well, I do uh, because I took a nice screenshot of Tobin's face for this next post called while the criminal justice system <clears throat> grinds people down, this white man gets money to look for racism. So, um, I've had a, a sort of beef with Tobin for a long time in part because his uh, university-enabled virtue signaling actually led to the destruction of the Festival of the Dead. Missoula, Montana used to be a place where the Festival of the Dead would happen. So Day of the Dead, you know, yes, not an American you know, festival, right? Um, but it's been happening here in Missoula for 25 years, <clears throat> long before Tobin ever lived in Missoula, Montana. But when Tobin came and, and riled up some of the folks, like uh, some indigenous people that, who were not Mexican— um, and I say that because Festival of the Dead is a Mexican thing. But all that to be said, Tobin, university professor, 
his career has been built on finding racism in different places. Um, and then when people don't necessarily like his, his career choices um, and then criticize that, then, then he's great at playing the victim. Also, getting some money. So this is where I, uh, I sometimes read articles and will find little nuggets buried. And this was from a Kaiman piece from about the ASUM. And you should, you should understand that ASUM is a fun body yes. to, to look at because you were on that university body. Sure. Although I've, I think I've changed quite a bit since then. Thank goodness. We should not be in the same um, political mindset as we were in college. Right. I think. Um, so this college article from the Kaiman <clears throat> reads as such. ASUM also discussed the external anti-racism audits of the Senate, which the Senate set aside $10,000 for Tobin Shearer's nonprofit to do. Shearer is the director of UM's African American Studies program. The audit was supposed to finish up last semester, but only just started because of, quote, technical issues in the business service department due to its, quote, understaffing, Berna said in an email. An anti-racism audit helps a group to find out where it has either implicit or explicit biases and how to correct them. President Bowles said this audit will take eight weeks and the first week has been completed. The report will be made public, but its interviews with senators will remain confidential. <laughs> oh, man. You know... I wouldn't be writing about Tobin if it wasn't for his quote nonprofit getting ten thousand dollars in sort right. of race extortion funding, um, so that the Senate can make sure they're not racist or I'm sorry biased either implicitly or explicitly. Um, what, what 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 do you think of this expenditure? Would you have voted to use ten thousand um, dollars to direct towards Tobin's nonprofit? Were you on the ASUM? I guess I'd like to know more about the purpose. Like I, I would be interested in why someone thought that was um, necessary. It's interesting though, because I'm thinking about something that we will probably discuss later. And there are underrepresented people. And I think that's kind of, in my view, that's an undisputed fact. And so the question is how do we get more representation? Is it, is it a democratic process? Is it, as some people would say, it's institutionalized racism or something like that. And so how, how do we, I'm going to say again, and I know this is a bad phrase, level the playing field um, to make people's voices heard make the like the minority voice heard. See, I'm so glad that you're actually being thoughtful because I was actually was so blinded by this image on my computer screen of Tobin's face that I forgot this post was actually using this $10,000 expenditure as a juxtaposition to what we were seeing in court. Um, right. So we were actually talking about, I mean, this is, this is the idea of the criminal justice system grinds people down. Sure. Um, we were trying to get a, an update on the JD Partain case. And this is a case that goes back to last summer. Uh, the charges happened in November and we're watching this case kind of move through the court system. Mm -hmm. We didn't expect when we were sitting there in court to see another case, um, oh, the, yeah. the, to see the resolution. Well, not, not actually the resolution. We just saw the, um, the filing of the plea agreement. So this was a situation in which two years ago, a man who was intoxicated ran over his girlfriend in the parking lot of the Winco here in Missoula, yeah. Montana. And now 
two years later, there's finally some some resolution in sight. Um, but when we talk about you know disproportionate representation, you know I, I think about Native Americans in the in the in the jail in the criminal justice system. You know I saw a lot of Native Americans when I was doing my work on the streets with the Pavarello Center. Um, very disproportionate in terms of their actual percentage in the population. Right. And so you do have those, those issues. You know, when you talk about law enforcement, uh, one of the, when I'd go to some of these trainings back when I was working at the Pavarello Center, sometimes they would be with law enforcement and it would be discussions about the fact that all of their, their experiences with um, indigenous folks we're going to be probably negative because that's the nature of calling in law enforcement is when something sure. bad is happening. And right. so if your experience is disproportionately negative, you're going to start building this bias or prejudice. And that's actually kind of normal just based on your, your direct experiences. But, um, I do think there are, there are questions to, to, in, to explore, and I'm not even opposed to looking at my own white privilege. I mean, I don't think I've talked about it in a while, but I've had plenty of experiences um, where things could have happened to me, but didn't. And that's in part I, I've identified because of my economic and skin privilege. So um, I'm not opposed to the things that Tobin wants to bring awareness to. $10,000 for a survey that, that was supposed to start. And I then, think that ugh. was more your focus. I think I think more than the content of the survey. So if, if it had been maybe a, a lesser price tag and perhaps a different survey error, we might not be having this conversation. But I do have some implicit anti-Tobin <laughs> bias. I will I will admit it. I will admit it. That's you know the the nature of my Gonzo journalism is the fact that I do not claim sure. objectivity in the in the writing of the five blog posts a week. Um, and it's, it's great to be able to get more into the details, um, in conversation with you, Ali. So I appreciate you also tempering a bit, the, you the, bet. the agitation, because I, I, I knew this was going to be a particularly fun and challenging conversation to have just because of the, the nature of it being a long week. So. But I like the bigger picture issues because the, we see them reemerge in different discussions and a lot of the same point circle back and i think that's pretty interesting oh bigger picture i'm really starting to think we have to talk now about some chinese balloons or should we talk about 99 balloons i would like to talk about 99 balloons first okay so it was actually called 99 red balloons but that was not the original title. If we it's have, like 99 loof balloons. If we have some 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 youth listening to us um, that don't remember the 80s, so 99 red balloons is a song. Is this is this correct? It is correct. Red balloons and nuclear war blowing up everything. It's so, but it was way happier than that. But you actually looked into the lyrics, and you have some yeah. some some pushback on the idea that the Red Balloon song is an actual protest song. You so this was originally the the '99 Luftaloon song was a German song. Say it that was again, Luftaloon. <laughs> You, did, I, you never heard the original? No. You never heard the German version? I thought maybe, version? I was worried you were having a stroke there for a second. <laughs> Luft de Lune. I, I, I thought you were mispronouncing balloon. No, it is a, the German version of the song was not meant as an anti-war protest ah, song. Ah, okay. It was more lighthearted than that. And then 
the English, American English folk rewrote the song and translated it 99 red balloons oh, the lyrics what, changed that's what you were trying to tell me it, yeah. it originally started as a german song right i thought they were just upset because the english words were okay okay so it actually no. started as okay right now that's making more sense and so the, and that became quote the anti-war cold war anthem wow so we we took their song and sort of appropriated it yeah for political purposes it's a great song and no. actually, did you know that more people actually prefer the original version, even Americans prefer the original German version than Interesting. the English version? And I listened to that song a whole bunch of times this week. So doing the American some, version. Some deep research for the, for the, our, our balloon conversation. You, yeah. Okay, you started looking into the balloon song after China... Oh, spied, yeah. uh, spied over the Montana, correct? It was more of a white orb-looking balloon, more than a red balloon, and mm. it's the size of three buses. That that is is that's a big balloon. It's it was spotted over Billings. Thought to have traveled from Canada and possibly surveilled Malmstrom Air Force Base in Great Falls, and then made its way to Billings, then made its way further east. See, my thought is that um, our governor is a billionaire from technology, and he doesn't like TikTok and has banned the use of state devices. It's all the rage right yeah. now in Republican circles to ban TikTok. It's really, it's like the, one of the cool things to do. I know you're you're giving me the two thumbs up, um, but um, Governor Gianforte obviously is going to be making his moves, which he which he's able to do because he was elected, but. Who the people that aren't elected are the the very wealthy people that have come to Montana now, and Montana has been in the in the last you know two years has been one of the main destinations for people relocating who have deep deep pockets. So my thinking is, you know, hey, kind of cool to send a balloon over. Don't just check out the missile silos. I mean, that's some good stuff. But don't you want some nice mansions if you're going to come in once you've um, hollowed out America with fentanyl and TikTok? You know, you come in and then you find the cool like mansions to like, you know, basically send out your little robot drone army to, to pacify the population. And it, is this a stretch? Am I? I think they're talking about <laughs> radio communications and, and stuff that normal satellites wouldn't be able to pick up so that's closer to the ground. I think they want to move into billionaires third homes uh, maybe. outside of Glacier. I don't know. But I do know that probably a lot of information was captured before it got shot down over the Atlantic Ocean. What if they somehow find a way to mutate wolves and they use the radio callers to turn them into like like robot wolf hybrids and we start having like actual cyborg wolf robot predators roaming the, the countryside? I feel like there'd be a lot of effort. Yeah, they don't need to actually make that much effort since, no. since we're kind of just falling apart. I, I don't know. I don't know why. I'm thankful that the thing... I, I shouldn't say that. Um, anyway, I'm thankful that the problem has been removed for now. You know, speaking of um, not saying things, <laughs> Danny Tenenbaum, I think, probably should rethink what he tweeted but because it's hard when, well, someone's, when, when someone screenshots things we, if um, we're talking about twitter posts we so, can we can all rethink some yes certain we all make mistakes on twitter from time to time but uh danny tenenbaum's mistake which i have screenshot for posterity 
says, Shot like the balloon. (laughs) Right? I, for one, welcome the additional oversight from China. Maybe they can tell us what the hell is happening at Warm Springs. So, yes, our state hospital, absolute disaster. Um, was funding pulled from, from the federal, from, yeah, no, the fed said, you know, we're pulling like Medicare, Medicaid money. Um, yeah, it's an absolute shit show. So, um, I think the state will slowly address that. I don't know if welcoming like Chinese overlords is really a way to score political points, especially for someone who just recently endorsed Mike Nugent for mayor here in Missoula. Yeah. I I said something to, to Mike Nugent's Twitter handle, um, on Twitter, basically like, you don't want this moronic statement associated with you now, do you, Mike? Well, the thing, I I don't have comment on that part, but I do have comment on, <laughs> maybe you'll have to rein me in for a second, but it's interesting that the concern would be, and I, I assume it's a facetious concern by Mr. Tenenbaum about looking at Warm Springs, although the state should be looking at Warm Springs. <laughs> that really should be happening. It is a bad situation. Um, I, I find it, I, I think all of the American people should be more concerned that China has been surveilling our technology for quite some time. And while there's probably a lot of information that they've gleaned from their balloon uh, hunt of the US of A, I think even more concerning <laughs> is what's pre-existed that. <coughs> so I'm glad you talked about um, surveillance and and technology bit <coughs> excuse me um because the other topic i kind of squished into the post about the chinese surveillance balloon is a drama that's developing about eliza blue and so i was both annoyed and somewhat intrigued that i had to look into both these topics of a balloon and eliza blue um in part because the the book i just received which i think i have floating around on our desk somewhere um, but there's a there's a book I, I got recently by Elisa E, so spelled with an S instead of a Z, and it's a completely different person. But this Elisa E is a victim of MK Ultra uh, trauma based mind control programming. Um, Eliza Blue claims to be a victim of uh, human trafficking. Right. And so it's really kind of interesting because we have Elon Musk coming to the rescue of Twitter. So that all the sad Republicans who have been banned um, and and want to get back in the fight on Twitter, you know, they're uh, they're back. They're back in the fight. And this Eliza Blue really has created this weird um, or has found her niche, has gotten her, her, her niche in, in terms of this like kind of right wing echo chamber media. So like people like Tim Cass and and others have promoted her. And she was one of the folks that was validating this idea that, that when Elon took over Twitter, he went after the pedophile accounts. He was getting hard. He was cracking right. down, right? Um, and so my thought is, well, well, I think all of this is kind of a distraction to some of the things going on with more vaccine disclosures from uh, Project Veritas. I think that should be a larger part of the conversation um, that's not happening right now. But um, it's also interesting if you're going to be searching Eliza E or Eliza Blue, if you have all of this controversy around Eliza Blue, then you're not going to probably see this book as prominently um, coming up in, in search results. And so um, one little weird sort of aspect of this controversy around Eliza Blue, I, I should also mention that people are being kicked off Twitter again, left and right, in part because they're criticizing people like Eliza Blue. So, they are. Yes, that was part of the controversy is that people are losing their accounts 
And so they thought that they were safe in the Elon Musk Twitter world. And oh. lo and behold, if if you're one of uh, one of his faves, if you're um, if you're and, and that's one of the, the problems of having a sort of uh, subjective billionaire, you know, running this platform on his whims and not necessarily through objective rules. You know, like they're not they're not putting free speech based, you know, objective rules in place and just let, letting things play out. Sure favorites are still are still being um, played and so it's it's very strange and for me we have a lot of things to pay attention to here in Missoula Montana in our own backyard um, as it relates to stuff like, I'm interested in like Chinese spy balloons yeah Chinese spy balloons and whether or not um, there was some kind of explosion in the sky yeah just a couple of days ago mm -hmm. in um, Billings that was another kind of interesting situation there's a lot of weird stuff happening in Montana it looked like a if you look at the video it looked like a, a smoke trail of some yeah, kind of like IC that. ICBM missile or something of course that's that's Russian but so my question with the Chinese spy balloon because this is the underlying question mistake versus intent China seems to think it was a mistake and that it was a civilian balloon that was innocuous and all that. Right. The U.S. government seems to take the contrary view and believe it was intentional. And it was in, in one place I read it was seen as an act of war or like an indication that they're that China is prepping for war against the United States. That's so, not fun sounding. No. But mistake versus intent is really, really important because it makes all the difference in the analysis. So remember when like a, a little missile hit Poland and it was like Russia may have done it. Turned out, no, it was Ukraine. That's another situation in which you're wondering, is that a mistake? Like a whoopsie, whoopsie, you know, oh, our little missile went to Poland. Sorry, guys. Or right. is that a potential attempt to false flag us into World War III? Um, there's al already a little bit of a, a whoopsie-doo kind of moment in Germany where um, you have a, a, an official in Germany talking about the West being at war with Russia, um, which is kind of uncomfortable, uh, a little, little awkward. German tanks might be, once again, killing Russians in places like Ukraine. Kind of crazy. Uh, everything old becomes new again. But um, the geopolitics is really kind of insane. Um, that actually was the thing that got me, <laughs> it got me turned against the, the mainstream corporate Democrats back in the day. So back when I used to be a progressive, it was all because of geopolitics. You know, I voted for, for John Tester, Allie, in 2006 because right. of the frustration against George Bush's war. You know, his, his warmongering. Do you remember those days Dun, when George Bush was even. a warmonger and John Tester was rocking out with Pearl Jam? And I was like, yeah, John Tester, it's 2006. I'm voting for you, buddy. Like, his, his haircut was fresh back then. You know, I, I enjoyed seeing his seven to six fingers. Um, how many does he have again? Four. Anyways, um, it is a different different day and age different time it is a much different day and time <laughs> wait did you ever think that you would miss those days no no nostalgic <laughs> for george bush no um but i am nostalgic yeah for i'm 100 i i don't even have to be nostalgic because i embraced it fully at that time but i will say we don't live 
in that world anymore. We're not in Kansas anymore. We, we don't. We don't. And the, the, the fifth generation warfare, the kind of war of the mind that seems to be um, part of what's happening, it's very difficult to like determine what's going on, even, even locally, let alone nationally. I mean, we've had situations that we've looked into in terms of whether or not a SWAT response was a legitimate SWAT response or a training. Yeah. Um, even locally, you more, have questions. More than once. <laughs> more than once. We have some trainings that are happening here in Missoula, Montana. Um, and just determining what's real is, is very challenging. And I think that's part of the, part of the intent. Um, if you're disoriented and confused, that's a, that's a great benefit if, if you're the person that has the information, um, the legitimate information, and, you, and you're... This is my thesis. I've believed this for a long time, that the cycle of violence that can happen in interpersonal relationships can be uh, extrapolated and magnified in governments. Right. Because I believe the smallest unit of government is the family. And so within those dynamics, if you have an understanding of the Petri dish of how those dynamics work on a, a micro uh, level, mm -hmm. you can see that on the macro level. Yep. And so some of the things we're talking about, like, it's a Chinese spy balloon. Is it a mistake or is it intentional? That makes a world of difference in yep. how one nation responds to that. It's true. It's absolutely true. And I think we're going to, we're going to start wrapping up. Um, I, I found an article. What's that? Did you want to talk about murder and bighorn? Oh yes. Yes. Thank you for the, um, verbalizing your hand signals because I was just seeing the hand signals and wasn't able to actually mind read. So, um, we are going to talk about that. So we'll, we'll wrap up with that. Okay. But before we get to that, I, I have an article that I'm going to read a portion of, and it's going to trigger you. No. What? I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What is it? Um, China's police station in Manhattan has closed its doors, State Department says. Manhattan, Montana or Manhattan, New York? <laughs> New York. Wait, read that again. Exactly, because the, the headline is kind of weird. You're like, how could a police station... How could that how could that exist, right? Right. China's <clears throat> police station in Manhattan has closed its doors, State Department says. And this is actually going to be a good segue because the FBI is in this article, and then we're going to start talking about the uh, Bighorn Bighorn murder in Bighorn County. Okay, I'm going to read this article. You ready? A Chinese government police outpost in New York City has closed. The State Department told National Re Review today. It's not clear exactly when or under what circumstances the station had shut down and the FBI wouldn't comment further on the matter, though state attributed the confirmation to the Bureau. Quote, the FBI has confirmed that the overseas police station in New York linked to Fuzho, Fuzhou has closed. The State Department spokesperson said in an emailed statement in response to an inquiry by National Review. The existence of the outpost was first brought to public attention last year by the nonprofit group Safeguard Defenders. The alleged police station was operated by the Public Security Bureau of the city of Fuzhou, Fuzhou. <laughs> and it is one of over 100 such stations that have opened across the world, largely in other democracies. While the Chinese government has claimed that these outposts merely support overseas Chinese nationals applications for driver's license and perform other administrative functions, Safeguard Defenders has linked some of them to the Chinese government's international stalking and harassment plots. 
Public scrutiny of the station brought with it attention from federal law enforcement and Congress in recent months, though the station's status has been unclear. Wow. <laughs> I I had not read that. I'm actually really surprised to hear that. I, I forgot to even mention this. I saw this a couple days ago, and I, I did think of you when I read this. Um, I actually see some steam is coming out of your ears hey. a little bit. Don't fume <laughs> over the fact that, you know, China has benevolent police stations in America, okay? Nothing but cool, like checking out what's happening and and you know, maybe they probably they probably help like find good restaurants. I'm utterly speechless because that's the first I've heard that and I don't even have time and certainly don't want to verbally process that. So, um as you're speechless, I'm going I'm going to respect that. We're going to get to this next week. I think we'll talk more about this. And we're going to talk more about the FBI because watching this Showtime special, and one of the one of the things that's unfortunate is that it is Showtime, so you do have to actually have some motivation in terms of signing up for a seven day free trial if you want to actually watch this. At some point, I'm sure it's going to be made available outside of the Showtime constraints because I would really encourage people to watch this. I need to watch the parts that I fell it is, asleep during. It is good, yeah. It's a little which it, you, it's it's not because it's not engaging. You just were tired. So just to clarify, yes, the I I don't stay awake very easily past eight p.m. But the the three part series is something that is uh, really enraging when you actually start getting into the details of how a young woman, for example, that was left behind at a uh, interstate rest stop um, could have such a immediate and and pretty extensive search for her and then for her body to show up days later um in the area that was searched and for the the coroner's office and the sheriff's office to say no hypothermia um there 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 are patterns beginning to emerge ali and and that is one of the things that we saw is that um they focused on three cases sure but there are other cases that you and I both have in mind right. that that really start start making anyone wonder um, if you have a family member caught up in in this sort of uh, <laughs> narrative meat grinder, um, determining what's actually happening, especially to young women primarily, but um, what could happen to anyone is really just mind blowing. Um, what are some details that stood out to you as as this documentary sort of unfolded? Gosh, there were so many, and I just think one of the overarching themes, potentially, if you if you're watching this documentary, is abuse of power, because the common thread through all of the cases was somewhat, I mean, and, and we're thankful for the law enforcement response for those who did go out and search and such. But if you watch the entirety of the documentary, as I completed, um, it's pretty interesting who gets searched for, who does not, jurisdictional football, so in these cases pertain to specifically missing and murdered indigenous women. One of the themes was if it happens on tribal land, who responds versus if it happens in, now this is uh, Bighorn County, so it's right next to Hardin. 
right next to Hardin, and then which you is have outside the, of the the two reservation. reservations is the Crow Reservation and the Northern Cheyenne, and so you have um, two sort of jurisdictional challenges there with the different reservations. Sure. And then you have the sheriff outside of that that would have county response. Um, and then in one of the cases where the, the young woman disappeared after a party and was found, um, you have the FBI was involved. 200 in, yards away from the house. And the FBI was involved in, in that case in a, in a way where they were never communicative to the family or from my understanding, right. I think even local law enforcement, although I'm sure some conversation had to have happen with the, the sheriff's department, but the family never got anything from the FBI in terms of what their role was in finding, sure. finding the body of their, of their daughter. Yeah. And I, I look at these four families who are going through absolute hell who understands the process? I mean, honestly, the process is relatively organic as it unfolds for each individual case. We see there's different responses. Even within that documentary, there are different responses based on the circumstances or whatever. Um, but here, here's, here's, one of the, here's one of the common themes. Um, when you have the ability to control time, time is the weapon. Sure. And so, so many, so many times... <laughs> Um, what I've seen is that slowing down something, yeah. slow walking something is a way of allowing evidence to disappear, allowing witnesses to potentially be um, influenced in some way. I mean, even with the J.D. Partain case, one of the things that we were discussing is that um, imagine having a person that like have, has taken a, a, an, an alleged act against you, against your sense of privacy um, and the months that play out right. and having to just be in proximity to someone that may have done something abusive towards you and you just still have to wait and wait sure. and wait. How does anyone sustain themselves, um, a family member that's, that's grieving? Like who has the presence of mind really to start becoming the detective, their own detective, you know, their own investigator, um, their own expert, you know, their own, you you have to do so much on your own in some of these places. And then to even have family members of the, the person that goes missing to be um, involved in the law enforcement yeah. response yep. is really, it's, it's troubling. It's incredibly troubling. It is. And so for those family members who are not law enforcement, uh, it's an exhausting process, but I'm reminded of some wisdom. My dad told me a long time ago, and I hope that this helps other families going through it too the only way to lose is to fold. And so you have to outlast the process no matter how long it is. And some of these cases have gone cold, they're 20 years old, but the only way to lose is to fold. Well, and there's another thing to be gleaned, and this is something <clears throat> behind the scenes from this documentary that, that not many people know, and so I can't actually say the name, um, but there is a person in this documentary that made a mistake of taking a job and that job became an impediment to moving forward to find justice or truth. And so it's, it's interesting because even, even what seems like a good thing, a good offer, you know, okay, I'm going to work within the system to create change. Well, you know, that job might actually be a way of neutralizing your voice. Sure. Once you have that paycheck, can you say the same things? Um, do you have a boss that's going to, to control what's being said? Do you have a committee sure. that you have to go and sit in every week or every month? Um, you know, where does that momentum 
go to die, you know? And, right. and so, because keeping momentum, it's not just a matter of keeping energy going with family members to keep searches going. You have to keep money coming sure. in. You, I yeah. mean, you have to keep paying people. Um, you know, we, we saw this with Rebecca Barsati's case, um, the amount of money that has taken Angela Mastrovito, Rebecca's mother, you know, to try and pursue the truth of sure. what happened to her daughter. Um, not everyone has the means, um, and even she doesn't have the means to, um, to go to those lengths, but that really is what, that, that's what families are being asked or being required to do because of a number of factors in Montana. And this is not just Missoula. This is not just the Eastern part of the state. It's not just the reservation or up in the nice whitefish glitzy place where you think you're all safe because, Oh, there's so much money and nice things happening in the restaurants owned by the billionaires who run the, um, you know, search and rescue efforts. You know who I'm talking about. So that's what you got here in Montana. Yeah. Welcome. Welcome tourists. I, I hope you want to stay and play on our rivers. Hope nothing bad happens to you. As an encouragement to the families going through it, the power of testimony is strong. And no one owns your story. You own your story, but no one else does. And so it doesn't matter what government entities try to silence you. Anyone who tries to silence you, it really doesn't matter because the truth speaks for itself. Yeah. You know, testimony can be powerful unless um, it's determined that you have rabies. And then I think that actually impairs your cognition. Also, falling off horses and hitting your head can impair cognition. That will have to wait for another episode, though, of Week in Review. Oh, goodness. I think we're going to have to wrap it up. Any, um, any um, hand signs you want to kind of give me to try and, and send signals of anything else we need to cover, to discuss? I think the posts have all been discussed. We've gone through all of the things. I think we've pretty much scratched the surface and covered a little bit of a lot of things. We're not deep diving on any particular topic um, in this weekend review. We're just kind of skipping and, and dancing along uh, to try and give a sense of what the heck is happening here in Zoomtown on, on any given yeah. week. And so just one final thought on the murder in Bighorn. Definitely want to encourage people again to watch that. I think mm -hmm. it's really important. I think you'd be shocked what's happening in your own backyard here in Montana. And something needs to change. Something has to change. Yeah. Um, it, it does seem to be hitting critical mass and we've not done much talk about the legislature. So we're actually going to have to um, get up to Helena yeah. and there are more conversations happening up in Helena that we need to um, take a more active role in. Um, we're also going to on Monday have the, the city council meeting. And so the Higgins quarter conversation will continue to be something to, to look at and to track. Um, if you want to reach out, you can reach me at willskink at yahoo.com. Uh, that's W I L L S K I N K at yahoo.com. My voice is a little scratchy, but I'm your fun-loving independent journalist here in Missoula, Montana, and I've been joined once again by Allie Harrison. Thank you. It's been a great conversation. Um, we will continue doing this every week. You can listen to Week in Review on Sundays. You can read blog posts Monday through Friday, usually posts at 7 a.m. Um, there's some things coming up, actually. You know, Allie, I don't think I've told you this yet. I forgot. Um, we, we have an interview. So we'll have to talk about this and figure out how we might want to approach it because I don't think I've ever done a co-interview, okay. but William Ramsey is a Christian and he's okay. a researcher of 
crazy Satanists. Okay. This and should be so fun. Um, I'm actually thinking um, in terms of the CC writer mentality, the, the Christian conspiracy sort of approach. Um, this could be kind of a fun conversation for you and I to both ab- approach. William Ramsey knows his stuff. Okay. So he knows his stuff. I might have to give you one or two of his books. Um, he's doing a documentary on the, the global death cult, um, the order of the nine angles. So really, it's a weird, obscure Satanist group, um, even more obscure than the OTO, which is based on Aleister Crowley stuff. Um, and he, he did a conversation with Monica Perez recently, which I haven't finished totally, but um, you'll have to listen to it. I, I have some ideas. And so I think it's actually scheduled for later this month. Okay. I think there's an actual date. So that'll be something to look forward to. Um, but the, the interviews are not the focus. Chasing, chasing down interviews is a lot of work. Um, it's, it's a lot more fun just to kind of sit and talk about the local headlines. Oh, and yeah. So um, we'll continue talking about local headlines. We'll continue looking to the skies for any balloons that may be flying over. And I know that we Like both 99 red ones. 99 red ones. And, you know, I, I have at least that many bullets if we uh, if we need hey. to, to take care of these balloons. Um, we're not going to we're not going to take pictures and put them on Twitter or Instagram. OK, you just go out and do it, people. That's the difference between the real Montanans and all you posers out there on social no, media. Let's not start World War Three. OK, well, we're not going to start World War Three. Um, we have enough fronts of uh, wars here locally to, to handle right now. So. On that note, thank you for tuning in. Please join us next week. This has been ZoomCron Week in Review. Adios for now. Well, there you have it. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of ZoomCron Week in Review. Here's the tune. I'm going to try and play it now. This one's dedicated to the technology wizard who spent many, many hours making sure that these tracks are actually listenable and not just a bunch of clicks that sounds like some weird kind of African foreign language. I hope you enjoy. Midtown, downtown, Franklin to the forts. Rattlesnake, love not hate, we will not resort. To the fears of supremacy tears for our noble plans. Our divine and virtue signs to redistribute land. Oh, yeah. Oh, my voice is rough. Slant streets and sidewalks. Shovel off that snow. Are you lazy, Grandma? Or is it who you know? Train rides and bike guys. Multimodal joke. Chew your sausage, dudes. Careful not to choke. Because you don't want to choke on the sausage that you're making. The multimodal sausage. Hmm. Big flats, bridge brats, digging in their heels. I got boots for every toe. Also, fuck your feels. School bus lost trust. Remember jibber jab? Your bus double-deckers, well, my bus keeps the tab. Oh, yeah, double-deckers. That's that's an inside joke. Hmm. Midtown and downtown, Franklin to the fort. Rattlesnake, love not hate, we will not resort. 
to the fears of supremacy tears for our noble plans. Our divine and virtue signs to redistribute land. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah.